Well, I just had the opportunity to go out and say hi to some of the kids as they were heading out to their classrooms. And lest we forget that they are being made as disciples of Jesus Christ now too. Let's take a moment. Let's pray for those Sunday school classes and those kids. Can you join me? Christ, we pray for those kids who are now about to hear your word as we are too. Let it not return void. Let little seeds be planted in those lives through the teachers and helpers. May those teachers feel encouraged and those helpers too, that they are doing gospel kingdom work so much different than babysitting, but forming and shaping little disciples. As we want to have happen here today too, Lord, bless your word across our building and service today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, about four months ago, a team of six individuals began something called the Vine Project. You've probably heard it mentioned. You've seen inserts in your worship folder. You've seen videos come home in your inbox. The Vine Project is a process that this team is going through, a, really a strengthening of our biblical convictions around disciple-making. And then this team, as they go through this process, will assess and kind of conduct an, an audit of sorts, a positive audit, <laughs> on our church and ministries to answer that question, are we making disciples at Bethany Church who make disciples? It's not a curriculum that we're going to ask our congregation to use. It's not a ministry program we're going to take from Mega Church A and try to lay it over Bethany Church. It's, it's none of that. No, this is a team looking at what the Bible says about discipleship and then looking to see if that matches Bethany Church's culture and who we are and want to be. In the first phase of this project, our team's been working through five core convictions by answering these five questions. Why make disciples? What is a disciple? How are disciples made? And who makes disciples? And, and where do we make disciples? Well, each week of this new series we're calling The Disciple-Making Church, the series that I'm really excited about, we're going to tackle one of those questions. So this week it's question one, why make disciples? Why make disciples? You know, if you've been to church any amount of time or um, grown up in church, you probably have heard Jesus told us to go and make disciples, the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. But, but why? Have you ever thought about that? Why did he say that? It might sound like a simple question, but Jesus uh, does give us more answers than just because I told you to. <laughs> now, that's a good reason in and of itself. To obey Jesus is a good enough reason in and of itself. I don't want to downplay that. But, but the Bible, the Lord himself is gracious, gracious as he is, gives us more, more wise than that, more answers than that, more behind it. The answer is that we make disciples because God's goal for all of history and humanity is to gather around himself a multitude of people who will spend eternity with him. Bring back what was lost in the garden and even make it better. You could call it Eden 2.0. This is the answer that gives so much urgency and importance to our mission. So this morning, we're going to look at three answers to the question, why make disciples as we launch into this new series, The Disciple-Making Church? Maybe you saw a video sent home this week. Uh, usually we do a video for all our growth group shepherds, uh, myself and David usually. This week it was Jack, Rance, and myself that prepares them to lead their group, 
gives them a little intro to the sermon and walks through some of the questions. We just thought with this series, we're sending it out to everybody. So if you're in a life group or growth group, watch it. If you're a leader, watch it. But if you also just want to know, well, what's coming up this week? Or you want a briefer version of, what did we talk about last Sunday? Please keep up with those and watch those. We'll send one uh, every week. Well, grab your outline. Hopefully you got it there. Some fill-in for notes and have your Bibles open. We're going to flip to a few passages today. Let's look at the first answer to our why. Here it is. We make disciples because this is Jesus's grand goal or grand plan, you could call it, for all of history. Here it is. To rescue, transform, and redeem a people and then bring them to the throne. That's, that's, that's it. That is the big cosmic reason, you might call it. It's, it's uh, the big story of the Bible. This is the mission, the grand goal, the grand plan of God on earth. This is where all history is moving. It's one giant sweeping narrative in history. You know, Eastern religions tend to look at history as cyclical. Things come and go. We come and go, they say. We're reborn in different ways. No, the Bible has a very linear history, a very linear from start to finish and this is that giant sweeping narrative. History is it's moving somewhere, not in a circle over and over again. It's moving somewhere. God is moving a people there by rescuing, transforming, and redeeming them. Where to? The throne room of heaven into God's presence, a new heaven and earth someday. Well, let's look for a moment at three Bible passages under this first point to help us understand this better, this big cosmic purpose of why make disciples. Well, we heard Bob read the Revelation 7 passage, the grand goal. Hopefully you still got your Bible open there as we look at it. This passage lets us in on the secret. It gives us the culmination of, of, of history. It, it lets us look behind the curtain, so to speak, of Oz. It gives us a, 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 a glimpse of God's grand goal for the world. And why make disciples? John in his vision describes a sea of people from all times and places and nations gathered around the throne of Jesus. And God is there. And we are there. And the lamb who washed us in his blood is there, Jesus. And those who are there are celebrating in abandonment and crying out, as verse 10 says, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is God's plan, the grand plan. God is there. We are there ruling and reigning with him. And Jesus, our Savior, is at the center. We sang that song, the center of it all. And the, the scripture shows us that's true. And sin and death are gone. Can you fathom that? Do you look at life that way? Do you look at your life that way? That the grand plan that we are part of is moving us somewhere in history to a culmination day, to an ending, actually. Well, actually, just the beginning, really, at that point. Or are we so caught up, are you so caught up in the tyranny of the urgency of your life that we can't see the forest from the trees? We thought life was about 
pandemics and elections and careers and money and our kids and sports and leisure and food, all good things, gifts from God, except maybe the pandemic. (laughs) Maybe maybe it's revealing some things. We've talked about that here. I think God is using it, and we know he will use it for our good. But all good things from God, I mentioned, but many times we live in our day-to-day life, and, and we should invest in the here and now. That's part of God restoring creation now. The kingdom's here now, and these things matter, and we have God-given responsibilities to families and career and our health and, and our community. But the investing we do in those things is headed somewhere, is headed towards one ultimate goal and end. Revelation 7. Are we living in the context with these good things, family, career, sports, leisure, food, with this end in mind? One ultimate purpose. In a venue we cannot fully imagine, the throne room, with a crowd we can't fully number, that has been rescued and transformed and redeemed in front of a Savior whose beauty would unravel us if we were to see him face-to-face right now. That's why we make disciples. That's why we, we do this. It's God's grand goal for the world. Turn to Titus 2 with me. It's earlier in the New Testament. Back a little bit. I'm going to be finding it too. First and Second Timothy, it's after that. Titus, small little book, just three chapters. But turn to Titus 2 if you've got your Bible or on your smartphone or And let's take a look at this under Titus 2. That we are trained in the gospel and transformed by the gospel. Titus 2 is a great passage. And in this passage, Paul is encouraging, he's encouraging Titus and the church how to live now. So Revelation 7 was this vision of the future. Paul's now telling Titus how to live now in light of that. What type of culture are they to be? Are we to be? He's encouraging Titus in this passage, you'll see as we read it in a moment, to lead a church that teaches sound doctrine and to see this truthful teaching be used to train is the word he uses. New Testament uses other words, equip, build up at other places. But in this passage, he uses it, train. That the word of God would be used to train men and women of God. Older men train younger men and older women train younger women in this grand plan. This grand plan of God's, which Paul highlights in this passage, he highlights it in two appearings of Christ. So you're going to hear and see two appearings of Christ here. We train in the gospel and we're transformed. Let's take a look at chapter 2, just a couple verses, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, that's that first appearing, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Did you catch the two appearings there? Did you see them? 
The grace of God appeared bringing salvation. That's the first appearing. And that is Jesus coming. The first appearing of God. To do what? To train us, Paul said. To build us up. To grow us in holiness. To live godly lives now as disciples in a disciple-making church. While we live and wait for the second return for him to come and bring us to our new home or bring our new home to us. Revelation 7 language there. To, to build us up to be zealous for good works. Training in the gospel. That's what a, a, a disciple-making church will do and should do. Train in the gospel. That's why. Because Jesus is coming again and he wants his workers, his citizens, his people, his servants to be using their talents and their gifts wisely and zealously, Paul writes to Titus, until he comes. You get a picture here of a church culture that is, that is, that is all engrossed in the disciple-making and building process. Let's look at how these two different types of church cultures might sound. We've got an article out on the counter that sort of highlights these same points, but I wanted to bring a few into our service. The first we're going to look at is a bit more of a consumer mentality church culture. And the second sounds more like the disciple-making church of Titus 2. Here's, here's a, a church that might lack a disciple-making culture. Are those big enough? Okay, good. Um, that lacks a disciple-making culture. And you might hear these and go, well, wait a minute. That just sounds like church, but hold on till we get to the second slide. I'm happy to just come to church, attend Bible study, volunteer some time, and give money. That's pretty good, actually. I need the support of friends at church. I need spiritual help to get through my life. I'll try and invite others to church to hear the gospel, but I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know if I could be the one to share Christ with them. I'll be a Christian at work by telling other people I'm a Christian. I'll try and be a godly parent, but I need the church programs to teach my kids. Now, now, I said, all good, and you might think, well, yeah, that's church, but let's take it a little deeper. Let's think of the words of Paul and Titus of training, of building up, of older men with younger, of older women with younger women, and see what it might sound like in a church that has a disciple-making culture. I want to keep growing in Christ's likeness and be jealous for Christ's name. I want to grow in the word and prayer and daily fellowship with Christ. I want my life priorities to reflect God's grand plan to glorify the Son by seeing disciples grow. I want my children to see the gospel affects every part of my life. I want to be used by God to build his church. I want to reach those around me with the gospel, even if it means more training or figuring out how to say and speak Jesus' name in uncomfortable situations. I want to learn to speak with others about their Christian lives. We're going to practice that one today when we leave here. More on that in a little bit. And I want to encourage other disciples to grow. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? One, one person doesn't look much farther maybe than the end of his or her nose, and the other is looking at, how can I be used to build up disciples? Being in church to be filled up only rather than part of, the, I want to be part of the forming process. Not just be filled up myself, but be part of the forming process. Discipleship is really being formed, not just filled. 
but formed in forming others. It's our second reason, Titus 2, that the gospel is training and transforming in the local body. Let's look at our third biblical passage because it's the biggest part of God's grand goal and it's going to lead us into our second answer to why make disciples. If Titus told us we want to see a culture grow that is more uh, centered and focused on disciple making than just my own personal growth. Here's another reason from Colossians 1. Turn there if you got your Bible uh, with me to Colossians 1. Why do we make disciples? This passage tells us because Jesus has rescued and redeemed people. That's why. In this passage, Paul tells us that Jesus rescued a people by redeeming them. He ha- he's traveled off to a far off country, the dark land of earth, And began a a revolution of transforming people from one kingdom to another. People who were slaves to their own desires, slaves to sin and and living under a different authority and a different kingdom than God's. And as we read this passage, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see Jesus at the beginning as creator, in the middle as sustainer, and at the end as reconciler. So let's look at Colossians 1, verses 13 to 20. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in, all, in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's kind of hard to fathom, as you hear this passage, the work of his son. Of Jesus. The gravity of the, the, the transfer from one kingdom to another, it, it's kind of hard to, to, to fathom that. I want to give us a visual to help us unpack it a bit more. Take a look at this visual coming up here. There it is. And we're going to build on this chart each week, actually, throughout this series. But there's a point in history, as you see there, where Jesus redeems a people. He rescues them. It's the the cross and the reconciliation that was made there between God and humanity as Jesus dies for sinners, taking the wrath of God on himself. But you notice on the chart, there's arrows that point to to a progressive growth transformed a progressive growth in the disciple's life until we continue to take steps of growth and are transformed and gathered around Christ in the throne room. Revelation 7, you see there the king of heaven, a crown on the far right. I want us to keep this visual in mind, and we're going to come back to it even this morning, because it's hard for us to really grasp the, the reality and the, the, the completeness of this transferring from one kingdom to another. But we're going to unpack it on more in our second reason why. So let's look at it. We make disciples. Why? Because God is transferring dead, lost, trapped sinners from the kingdom of darkness 
to the kingdom of Jesus. And this second why of the morning, I think having a fundamental misunderstanding of this reality, the transferring of dead sinners to a new kingdom, has led many a church and many a disciple to grow sleepy or cold and lose the sense of of, of urgency of, of seeing sinners saved and disciples built up. You know, we forget that the one thing that unites humanity, the one thing that unites humanity is our common sinful rebellion against God. You know, if you think about it, remember back to our Genesis series, it's actually the thing that scattered us. Remember the sin at the Tower of Babel? Humanity was united. One common people, one language, until that moment. And God scattered us And that's actually the reason why God has to bring us back now together. In a post-enlightenment world, we think of the beauty of diversity, the unity in diversity, all the nations and the beauties of their languages and their cultures coming back together around the throne room. And yes, that's part of it, and God does have beauty in each culture and language, but the only reason he has to bring them back together actually is why? The sin that separated them in the first place. There's actually a dark underbelly to that truth of the gathering of the nations around the throne. We forget that that one thing unites us. And he has to now bring people back together. Let's see this in Ephesians 2. Would you turn there with me? I said we're going to look at a few passages and jump around this morning. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So you see those letters, you're in the right place. Ephesians 2 one of the most powerful passages, I think, in the Bible. Actually, chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians are, are like blockbuster, home-run Paul writing. But 2 verses 1 through 7, we get this powerful image of this transferring that takes place when someone comes to trust Christ, the big why of the morning. Look at 2, 1 through 7 with me. And you, 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 me, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all once lived. The passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you see here in this powerful passage, it's graphic, how all humanity dwells in darkness and all individuals are born into this world dead in sin. We could put all humanity as a kingdom there on the left there of the cross, darkness, 
as a kingdom and individuals on the left side of the cross as dead in sin, trapped in darkness. I can't stress how important this is because we all start in that kingdom. Following the course of this world and the prince of this world, Paul wrote, that's Satan, and walk in darkness. That's hard to grasp for us, though. You see, the reason we grow cold on disciple-making and and our part in it is because we actually don't really believe that at times. Or we believe it in our head, but we don't live that way functionally. We believe we kind of live in neutral territory. Think about it. In our lifetimes, I think things are changing. We're going to talk about that. But in our lifetime, we've lived in the very profitable West through times of peace and wealth and an abundance of entertainment opportunities. And we live amongst nice people, smart people, good people, filling our lives with work and play and food and leisure. And I said, those things aren't bad in of themselves. Many times we attend church and because we live this way with this mindset, we can then be just happy to kind of have our weekly pick-me-up and it's comfortable, it's easy, but all the while there is a dead, dark, lost, trapped, sinful world that is perishing and dying. And we live that way until something kind of comes along, right, and smacks us upside of the head. Like the plague of COVID that comes along and kills five million people. Or a tsunami hits a coastline and kills thousands. Or, or two planes slam into the side of the World Trade Center. Or the like, life of a local youth is lost before his time. And then, then we're reminded, yeah, I don't live in neutral territory. We don't live in neutral territory. As, as, as darkness in those moments breaks in into reality, or as we're seeing even now, hostility is beginning to change and grow in the West. And we're reminded there is no neutral ground. We have to hear that. There is no neutral ground. Either you live in the kingdom of darkness or you've been transferred, rescued, and delivered to the kingdom of light. There's no in between. Paul describes only two kingdoms in Ephesians. This is so important, and it's such an important part of why we make disciples, because as verse 4 says, imagine if verse 4 wasn't in there, look down at it, 2-4, because as verse 4 says, but God, in the midst of all that darkness and deadness, but God in mercy, he's making dead people alive in Christ by giving his life-giving spirit. Do you believe that? Has that happened to you? Let me be clear here. Unless God has made you alive by his spirit, you're not a Christian. The Bible's very clear on that. You have not been transferred from one kingdom to another. And I'll even go so far as to say this. It's possible that you've been attending church for years. It's possible to be here today and you've said a prayer maybe. It's possible you believe right things about Jesus to know him as a concept, a doctrine, or a mascot of your church and not know him as a person. That's possible. 
And if you don't have the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians, we're going to go to in a moment, he says, if you don't have the Spirit, you haven't even begun the Christian life. Some of you are thinking, wow, I did not come for this this morning. (laughs) You're making me a bit nervous with this discipleship stuff. I mean, I attend church, and I've accepted Jesus into my heart. I obey him, but this sounds kind of like that super spiritual disciple stuff or a bit a bit extreme, but let me be clear. There's no other kind of Christian. There's no other kind. Christian isn't adding a few beliefs to your life or even saying a certain prayer. It's a new birth. It's a transfer out of one kingdom to another. Has this happened to you? There's a place in Galatians that I just mentioned we're going to go there. Or Paul, he's addressing the Galatians who seemed to, say, seemed to be born by the Spirit, like they'd had this thing happen to them, justified, uh, be, being seen to be right in the eyes of God is what that word justified means, through faith. But now they were returning to some of their old ways, some of their works or rule-keeping to get on with the rest through rule-keeping. So maybe they were saved by Jesus, but hey, now we got to get to it and make sure we really are saved. And here's what Paul said in Galatians 4, 1 through 4. You can look on the screen. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, here it is, having begun by the Spirit, Are you now being perfected by the flesh, by doing lots of stuff, good works? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. What's going on here? Now the Galatians, they lived hundreds of miles from Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. Hundreds of miles. It's like 500 some miles, I think. And yet Paul says he was, Jesus was publicly portrayed and crucified before your eyes. He was before your eyes, Paul says. That's strange. They could not have actually seen him. They lived hundreds of miles away. Paul is saying to the Galatians, I came to town, and I didn't just teach principles. I graphically showed you and vividly conveyed to you the story of Christ. That's what he's telling them. Because, yes, they didn't see him. Did he put it graphically on a sign or show them or have a flannel graph or PowerPoint? (laughs) No. What did he do? What happened? There's a place in Ephesians where Paul kind of speaks in some similar language. He says this, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? It's a place in Ephesians where Paul says this, and he says that you have to have the eyes of your heart enlightened opened by the Spirit of God to see Jesus, as Paul said in Galatians. You've seen him publicly crucified. No, they hadn't. They lived hundreds of miles away. So it's not just about church attendance to be a disciple. It's not just about adding a few new beliefs. It's not even just about saying a sinner's prayer. Something deep down inside of you has to happen in the core of your being, in the core of who you are. 
the eyes of your heart have to see Jesus to be a disciple. Now, it's not as difficult as it sounds. You think, oh, this is really complex and kind of mystical and esoteric and, 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 and enigmatic. Well, it's actually not as difficult as it sounds. Let's see if we can illustrate it. How do you see something with the eyes of your heart or have it transform you? Well, when you're young, I have a couple examples. Here's one. You're about to get married. And there's good advice and counsel you get, sometimes too much, right? But someone will inevitably say, you know, getting married is wonderful, beautiful, but it's also really challenging. And having a family and kids too, that's really hard. It's quite another to be young and about to get married and start a family and hear that. It's quite another, though, to see it with the eyes of your heart, isn't it? (laughs) To really experience it, isn't it? Or when you're middle-aged and your parents are aging and they begin to complain about all their aches and pains and you're like, wow, that sounds, sounds rough. It's quite another to hear that. It's quite another to taste and see it yourself with the eyes of your heart, isn't it, when you go through it, actually? And the other part of your body's hurting or ailing or breaking down. Until you experience it yourself, until the eyes of your heart are enlightened and you go through it yourself. Or how about aging? And someone you love is very ill and the doctor finally does say to the family, we can't really do any more. And this person's going to die. Now, inevitably, mentally, you assent to that and you say, like, yeah, I know, okay, I know this person's going to die. But many times in those processes, doesn't it take weeks, months, sometimes even actually after the fact to actually go, yeah, okay, the eyes of my heart have been enlightened to this reality. Or how about Jonathan Edwards, who in one of his great sermons, we've used this example before, but said, it's, quite, it's one thing to have somebody tell you that honey tastes sweet. It's quite another, though, when you take a, a bit of local honey that we have and put a spoon in it and put it in your mouth, isn't it? It's totally different, isn't it? Enlightened and taste it with your taste buds. Here is how a dead, trapped sinner is transferred. You may know all about Jesus. You may know he died for you. You might even believe that, but at some point in your life, it becomes beautiful. At some point in your life, it sinks into your heart. At some point in your life, there's a corner that's turned where you go from saying, well, I believe that's true, to now having it melt you, move you, propel you, where he is graphically portrayed, as Paul said in Galatians, to your eyes. Where Paul says in Ephesians 1, the eyes of your heart are enlightened. What's happening? The Spirit is helping you taste and see It's one thing to say you're a sinner. It's quite another to taste that you're a sinner, isn't it? Those are two entirely different things. It's one thing to say he is your Savior. It's another to have the eyes of your heart open to see it. Has that happened for you? Have you been transferred from one kingdom to another, from the kingdom of darkness now to the kingdom of light? And I will say, if it has, the Spirit will give you that assurance. He will work in your life. Sometimes it's stronger and more experiential and more tasty than others. And sometimes it's not. But that's his job. He's the one that gives you the assurance as we live in community together. 
This is why we make disciples, because we get to be part of this. Here's your second sub-point. We get to be used as instruments. I hope and I pray with an urgency of holy discontentment for the status quo. We can't be content with just coming to church. We have to be the church. We are the church. And many of you have been living this way. We are the church. And if you are one of his, he will hopefully, and I pray, give us this sense of urgency that people are trapped, are dead in sin, and dying this way. And give us a holy discontentment to want others to also taste and see what we have tasted and seen. That's why we make disciples. We get to be used by him as these instruments. But it's even more than that. It's even more than Jesus just using us as individuals to see individuals converted and trained and grow. It's more than that even. Let's talk about our third reason why. Our third and final reason why we make disciples this morning is because Jesus is using us to build his church. To build his church. This is the story of the Bible. The world we live in is in desperate need of being rescued. People need to be rescued and then transformed. And then God will gather us around Jesus someday in a venue where there's no evil or pain or death. This is like the Google Earth view of disciples. We've used that image and metaphor before for how we're looking at things. It's like the Google Earth view, the zoomed out view that shows us the grand plan of history. You can kind of see it on our chart again here. When a person becomes a believer now, and the Spirit gives them eyes to see, how do others in the world view this when this happens in somebody's life? Maybe somebody in the, here, we've had a couple of people in the last few years that have come to trust Christ. What was that experience like? What do people think when that happens and they see man or woman come to trust Jesus? What do they say is going on? Well, some will look at it and say, well, that's nice. Maybe he kind of wants to get his act together, clean up his life. Some will describe it as, wow, you want, he's, you want to live your best life now? Then, hey, come to Jesus. And, and religion and spirituality will kind of fill that void for that person. Oh, it's good, good, for, good for her, good for him. Well done, you. It's nice to have something bigger to believe in than yourself. That's, that's, that's good, like, like, like it's adding vitamins to your diet or something. <laughs> Others will look and say, wow, he just joined the bigoted team of ignorant, science-hating, gullible, weak-willed people on this earth. How do Christians look at it when another Christian comes to trust Jesus? They might look at her and say, well, that's great. She's found forgiveness and believes in Jesus now, and that's accurate, and that's right, and that's true, but it's got to even be bigger than that for our why. Because as wonderful as salvation is, as wonderful as the gift of grace and forgiveness is, it isn't actually primarily about the individual being saved. Jesus is building his church one person at a time, but he's building his church around the world 
And all through history, he's moving all history towards this goal of rescuing people out of darkness and and spiritual death and gathering them around Jesus as transformed citizens of the kingdom, as the king of the cosmos. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing at Bethany Church. That's what he wants to do here at Bethany Church through you. That's what he's doing. But I know as we start a series like this, and as our Vine Project team started the Vine Project, we're like, there's a lot of reservations and roadblocks to this. And maybe you're listening going, this all sounds really good. And it's a great pep talk before the game today. <laughs> but I've got these concerns. Maybe some of these thoughts have been swirling around your head. This is too big. This is too big. Or this sounds impossible. Or this is not for me. Well, as, we, as we've begun with this big zoomed out view, what if I was to tell you that discipleship can happen in a multitude of settings with a multitude of different Christians, with a multitude of different gifts, in a multitude of different ways from the very formal to the very informal? What if we were to reframe discipleship here at Bethany Church as just seeing a person on this continuum, somewhere from either really far away from Jesus to great spiritual growth and maturity? What if we were to see discipleship as just the person in front of us trying to gauge where they're at on this continuum, far from Jesus, close to Jesus, and helping them take just one small step in maturing to become like Christ towards Jesus? Do you see the chart? One step at a time. What if we were to reframe discipleship in that way? That's not too big, is it? That's not impossible, and that could be for everyone. Now, that could look like something like leading a growth group, teaching Sunday school, starting a Bible study at work, preaching from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, but it can also mean asking someone in the gathering place after service, what was the takeaway for you today? That's discipleship. That you can do. Or praying for a friend over coffee this week. Sharing a book with a non-Christian neighbor. Reading the Bible one-on-one with someone. Reading a Christian book to your grandkids every time they come over. Praying for the lost by name. That too is discipleship. What if we were to reframe it that way? When we think about it that way, we can all be part of that. You can do that. We can all be part of God's grand goal to rescue, transform, redeem a people, and build his church around Jesus' throne. There's a role for everybody in that. From the eldest person here to the youngest person here. All of us. There's a role for us in that. I'm excited about this series. Can you tell? Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be your disciples and grow as your disciples. We want to have a culture that's disciple-making at Bethany Church. Lord, and I'm thankful for so many years there has been a culture of that with the Word-centered and Christ-centered, and, and yet none of us has arrived. No church has fully completed their mission. So we ask you to use these next weeks through this series to challenge us, 
Change us, encourage us, draw us into the heart, your very heart, God, which is the mission for the world. And the lost coming to find you and building your church so that we're all together someday. Lord, let us each find a bit more through these weeks a role, a place, the impetus, the encouragement to be a disciple-making church. And let this continue on here for years and years at Bethany Church till you come back. Thanks for every disciple in this room, and thanks for already not yet disciple who may come to even know you today. In Christ's name, amen.